This is Take a Second, a weekly Come Follow Me podcast that focuses on finding the Savior in the Old Testament, and then how we might teach it in family or ward settings. I'm Brian Ricks, and Stuart Black is joining me to make sure that we stay on the rails. We are recording the podcast from the Student Lounge at the Pocatello Institute, so thanks for joining us for our lunchtime discussion of this week's Come Follow Me Scripture Block. All right, week two, Isaiah. Too. I think last week we said that there was four weeks. There's five weeks. There's five. We've got it. We've got an extra, which is more time than I've ever spent in Isaiah in my entire yeah. teaching career. Yeah. I've never spent five weeks. Um, and uh, so I guess to get started, I, I remember teaching this in seminary, and I would spend a ton of time in Isaiah one through like seven. <laughs> yeah jump to you know hit 29 and hit uh, the the uh professor anthem story uh-huh. and then jump to the end 53 yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, yep those chapters but in my prep for this i i found a connection to the savior and that's all like that is like one of my favorite things to do in isaiah is when you start to see connections to christ in isaiah one reason because a lot of old testament scholars will say well there is no christ in in the Old Testament, that this was a specific, a Jehovah-specific religion, and that there was no reference to, to Christ. And then you see things like what there is this week with um, Eliakim, Eliakim, am I saying that? Eliakim, um, who stands as a, like a type and shadow of Christ. This is, it is so Christ-centered that it's it's hard to imagine how people miss it, and I know people say, well, you're reading it through a Latter-day Saint lens, and therefore you you put Christ in there, and I guess I, I don't have a defense for that. I do. I, I do that very intentionally. And, um, and I think you know, last week we gave a couple of tips about okay, how can you study Isaiah or tips for understanding it better. I think that's one of them. Yeah. I, I really think that if you if you read Isaiah looking for the Savior, you'll see him. And and frankly, I think that's a good way to go through life. I do look too. For Christ and look for his hand and his love and his that he's he's here and he's here and he's here that he's he's actually the one who's influencing the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Israelites that he is guiding all of these things all because he has a plan. Yeah. And I think that's a that's a good thing to look for and understand. Well, and I think I like I guess from an academic standpoint, I can understand the I can understand the scholar's argument that you shouldn't force anything into there if I was making this a scholarly if this was a scholarly effort, but at this point, as a as a as an active Latter Day Saint who has a testimony of Jesus Christ, who is intentionally looking for Christ, I don't think there's anything wrong. There's nothing, you know, there, there's nothing wrong with putting that set of glasses on and then looking specifically for that. And and when you do, it's amazing how often it jumps out. Amen. Uh, early on in these chapters, and without hitting, spending too much time in the specifics. You've got this – several of the chapters start out, the burden of Babylon, the burden of Moab, the burden of Assyria, and, and different translations translate that differently. And it's essentially the message to Babylon or the message to Assyria. But back then, nobody, nobody in Babylon cares what Isaiah is saying. In fact, Babylon's not even really a thing. Yeah. For a hundred years, Babylon's not even really – they're still kind of this fledgling little country that's kind of – trying to go under the radar for Assyria. They don't want to be noticed yet. Um, but the fact that the message is to them, it's it's easy for us, and it, was pro- it may have been easy for the people in Isaiah's day to miss the real purpose of the message. 
And while the message was about Babylon and even maybe to Babylon in a roundabout way, it was really meant as a warning to the Israelites. So in chapter 13, Isaiah says the burden of Babylon, and then he points out all of the consequences. Everything that's going to happen to Babylon. Verse 12, I will make man more precious than gold, fine gold and a man more than the golden wedge of Ophir. What makes things valuable? It's when they're rare. And the Babylonian men are going to be rare. Uh, verse 15, everyone that is found shall be thrust through, and everyone that is joined unto them shall fall by the sword. Verse 16, not just the soldiers, but their children shall also be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses shall be spoiled. Their wives shall be ravaged. Verse 17, I will stir up the Medes against them. This, uh, there's going to come these natural disasters and these, these armies that will come against them, and they will not regard silver. Uh, they're not going to pay attention to gold. You can't buy your way out of this. You can't buy your way out of the consequences. Uh, verse 18, they'll have no pity on the fruit of the womb. The eye shall not spare children. And then, and, and then verse 19, kind of the, 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 the final statement against Babylon. Babylon, the glory kingdoms, the beauty of the child, these excellency shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Here's the warning. Israel, if you tie yourself to Babylon, this is the consequence. This is their future. Uh, and then chapter 14, it says, now let me tell you what I'm going to do with Israel. I'm going to gather in. I'm going to protect them. I'm going to have mercy. Verse 1, I'll have mercy on Jacob, and I'll still choose Israel, and I'm going to set them in their own land. Uh, verse 2, the people shall take them and bring them to their place. I love the end of verse 2. They shall take them captives whose captives they were, and they shall rule over their oppressors. There's this, this promise to Israel, and I think for modern-day Israel, we know that the the symbolic connection to Babylon is the world. And so we attach ourselves to the world at our own peril. If we attach ourselves too firmly to them and we follow them, then those things that oppressed us, uh, they're going, they'll be our downfall. On the flip side of that, if we remain apart from the world and we hold to our covenants and we stay firmly entrenched in Zion, this is our future. And then, the, and then Isaiah is going to do the same with Moab and with Assyria. Here's the consequences. This is what's going to happen to them. It, this is Elder Holland saying, we know the score. <laughs> we know who's going to win this battle. And, and it just comes down to what jersey are you going to wear yeah. at the end of what, the game. The score is decided. The game's decided. What sideline will you be on? Yeah, what color do you want to be wearing? Yeah. I want to be wearing red. That's Those are our home jerseys. I want, I want to wear blue. That's. But just – for the Cougars, but <laughs> in the end, you want to be wearing red. Yeah, that's right. Like which you. a lot of my friends in Utah <laughs> remind me all the time. But my favorite chapter this week is chapter 22. It's my new favorite because I found things in that I've never seen before. Uh, there's two characters, two historical characters that were servants of Hezekiah the king. And Hezekiah, I have two favorite kings in Israel, Josiah and Hezekiah. They are my favorites. Um, the tail end, towards the end. Yeah. Yep. And they're two of there, there are only a handful of righteous kings in all of Jerusalem's history after, after Solomon. And Hezekiah and Josiah are two of them. I love Hezekiah because he has the faith to stand up to the Assyrians. Uh, he, he relies on Isaiah for, as his counsel. In fact, in two of these characters that come up in 22 are actually part of the emissary that Hezekiah sends out to the Assyrians, to Sennacherib. And then they bring the Sennacherib's message back. And then Hezekiah sends these two over to Isaiah to get his 
What should to I get do? his counsel. Yeah. So the two characters are Shebna and Eliakim. Shebna, in verse 15, it says, Thus saith the Lord God of hosts, Go get thee unto this treasure, even unto Shebna, which is over the house, and say, What hast thou here? And then the next several verses are going to be criticisms of the Lord of Shebna because he's kind of set up his own kingdom. He's trying to build himself this uh, – He's trying to build himself a big sepulcher. He's essentially like Babylon and Assyria and Moab. So within chapter 22, now we're drawing back to look at what happens to the proud. Shebna is a type of Babylon, a type of Assyria, a type of Moab, and he's removed from his place. He's actually – Eliakim becomes over all of the house because he gets he, – he gets essentially Shebna's job because Shebna was focused on himself and trying to build himself and – but Eliakim, verse 20, there's this, there's this great title, and the Lord uses this a couple of times in the Doctrine and Covenants. But he says, and it will come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. So both Shebna and Eliakim are servants of Hezekiah, but only one of them is a servant of the Lord. And then there's all these, these things that El, Eliakim, that, that happened to Eliakim that are types and shadows of Christ. Verse 21, I will clothe him with thy robe. I will strengthen him with thy girdle. I will commit thy government into his hand. I love that. This is this is a messianic prophecy based on the actual life of Eliakim. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Uh, here's my, I have to add something James Dalmage every week. So here it is. James Dalmage in 1916 writes the great first presidency and quorum of the twelve uh, document titled The Father and the Son, which sets forth several reasons why the Book of Mormon refers to Jesus Christ as both the Father and the Son. And one of them is that as kind of the founder of the covenant, he's our Father. When we're baptized and we take upon us the name of Christ, we become covenant children of Christ. That's Mosiah chapter 5. You become sons and daughters of Christ. So here... Eliakim is going to become the father of the to the inhabitants of the Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And now verse 22, and this is the one that I really love. The key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder, so he shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. This kind of has priesthood key. Yeah. This is Nephi, whatever you should. This is Elijah. This is Peter. But the specific mention of the key of house of David uh, is referenced in Revelation chapter 3. In the, in the uh, letter to the church of Philadelphia, John says, These things saith he that is holy. Now in the scriptures, he that is holy is always Christ. He that is true, he that hath the key of David. Who has the key of David? It's Christ. Eliakim is very, it, it, John saw this connection. And then he says, he that shutteth, and, or he that uh, openeth, and no man shutteth, he that shutteth, and no man openeth. And then verse 8, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. One of the jobs of Eliakim was to determine who got in to see Hezekiah. He kind of held, he was the keeper of the door. He was, he was the gatekeeper. That reference to 2 Nephi now. You've got, I'm the gatekeeper, and I don't employ a servant another there. Another title of the same. Yeah. yeah. And so... Eliakim is this as this gatekeeper. He gets to decide to see who, who he gets to determine who gets to see the king. And like Christ, who kind of is the gatekeeper between us and the Father. So when the when the Savior dies on the cross, one of the things, one of the natural phenomenon that takes place is the veil in the temple 
is rifts. And that, that veil has stood for thousands of years. That veil has stood as the obstacle between, the, the symbolic obstacle between man and the Holy of Holies or the throne of God. And Christ's death, open, it, it, it throws those, it, 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 I, get, I don't know if it's a good, good analogy or not, but it, it kind of takes like the Wizard of Oz, it, it throws the curtains wide open. And now we have, a, we have a path open to God because of Jesus Christ and his willingness to perform the sacrifice. Uh, and, and that idea then that you're also connecting, talking about keys, well, that's, that's the Savior. He's opening, he's throwing open the doors of heaven and saying, you're here. And then he's also binding down Satan. He's saying, and you're locked up. You're shut. You're done. And, and, you, and he does both with, the, with those keys. And that's, I think that's a great connection with that. Yeah, and I love it. Just a couple chapters later in Revelation, Revelation chapter 5, John's weeping because they can't find anybody worthy enough to do what? Open the seals. So this, this idea of Christ's, Christ's role as a Messiah, one of those roles is to open things with those keys, with authority. And then verse 23, and I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place, and he shall be a glorious throne to his father's house. Again, all of these are specifically talking about Eliakim, but placed in the light of John's writings and in the light of Latter-day Saint Revelation, or Latter-day Last Dispensation Revelation, this is clearly a messianic prophecy seen through uh, the life of Eliakim, one of the Lord's servants. And I, I get super excited when I see that. I love that. I love that idea of uh, that, that symbol of who he is. And um, at, at the beginning, before we started, um, I was asking some of the students in here, what were some of the, your favorite object lessons? And I said, well, I just want to know the object. And and having taught seminary, you know, uh -huh. for a while, uh, and institute, some of the best object lessons, it becomes so focused on the object, people are like, I don't remember. I don't, I don't even remember I just, what you're talking I don't about. Remember the object that that happened. Mm -hmm. and the teacher I worked with brought in a chicken, and it was like something about trust. I don't even remember, but he hid a chicken behind the piano in the seminary building, and he said, "Who believes me?" Oh, yeah. They just made it like wait and ask. And anyways, um, I, I love that idea. Then we're talking about keys and holding the keys and opening it and relating it to the veil. And uh, in, in chapter 28, I, there was just a couple of them that that I thought, you know, one an additional reason to really like Isaiah is he gives a lot of object lessons. He is the king of object lessons. Yeah. He does a lot of these uh, similes and and uh, metaphors and all sorts of different you know English literary teaching techniques. Uh, but one of them that I that I like, just kind of connecting a couple of these thoughts that I had, we, we talked about Babylon at the beginning, and one of the things that it'll mention, like the cedars in Lebanon, mm -hmm. uh, a lot. This, I love how it talks about the Lord is going to cut them all down. And it's this idea that you think your tree is great, big, and powerful and stuff, and the Lord's like, I'm going to hack them all down. Yeah. Uh, every single one of them. That every time you think you're proud and lofty, he's going to he's just going to lop it. It's going to be it's going to be gone. But some of the ones here in chapter 28, some of the objects that that um, Isaiah gives or or talks about talks about line upon line or step upon step. And I, I thought about ladders and about you know how hard would it be if you had to climb a ladder four rungs at a time? And how grateful I am that the Lord says I'm going to teach you this way, line on line, not four rungs at four rungs. And in verse 13, uh, well, he says in uh, 10, I guess 10 and 13. 10 says. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. I love that he says it again. He says, mm -hmm. precepts, 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 line, 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 line. He says, here little and there little. And 13 says, 
But the word of the Lord was unto them precept upon precept, precept upon precept. That's not me just reading poorly. That's really in there. That he's he's really laying it out there. And I, I love that idea that that's how the Lord is often teaching us. It is sometimes we might feel like, well, slowly I get it. But other times we're like, I, I need it again and again. I need you to work through this slowly with me. That part of the reason we're talking about this desolation of Babylon, well, because it's a reminder for us today, don't hit your wagon to the world. Well, this isn't a complex issue or a complex thing that we're trying to deal with. This is something that people have been dealing with forever. And anyways, he, he talks about a couple other ones, but, but going on here uh, in 24. So if I was, again, just a little teaching idea, you, you might want to bring in a ladder. Mm -hmm. Talk about that and read these verses. Uh, verses 24 and 25, I bring in like a clod of dirt. Uh, and 24 says that the plowman plow all day to sow, that he break open and that he open and break the clods of his ground, when he hath made plain the face thereof, that he not cast abroad the pitches and scatter the cumin, cumin, and cast in the principal wheat and the appointed barley and the rye in their places. He says he's mapping all this out. Do you leave all the clods together? Or do you smash them open? Just smash them open. So you talk about these next few verses where you bring in some seeds and talk about seeds and things, but it says, For the fitches are not threshed with the threshing instrument, neither is a cartwheel turned about upon the cumin, but the fitches are beaten out with a staff and the cumin with a rod. Red corn, which is wheat, is bruised, because he will not ever be threshing it, nor break it with the wheel of his cart, nor bruise it with his horsemen. This also cometh forth from the Lord of hosts, which is wonderful. And counsel and excellent and working. A, a key to me is using the footnotes. Mm -hmm. The footnotes in 29 give you a great, great response. It says, The reaping and threshing of the world, as on a farm, will be properly done by the Lord. I just added this in my own uh, in my own words in my scriptures. I wrote, Because the Lord knows each of us individually, He gives us personalized experiences to help us grow. That when you're actually like, um, harvesting things you don't harvest everything the same exact way uh, as a uh, when i was a teenager i worked in potato harvest in rexburg and, and you cannot believe the number of potatoes that are in a field it's it is crazy how many they can harvest at once and how many get put in these big potato cellars and then shipped off and, and it's just it's it is unreal but you can't harvest apples the same way and every soft fruit needs to be picked by hand um, a couple of days ago, our, our neighbor was very kind and, and brought us a big bag of peaches. And oh. our son, which I know is the oh. like, of all time. I do. Peaches, yes. And all these good things. And he had the bag and he wanted one, but he grabbed the wrong end of the bag and just peaches out everywhere. So he's helping pick him up and he was kind of tossing, tossing them. And I had to slow him down and say, you can't do that with this. There's, there's other fruits and other vegetables, maybe not fruits, but other vegetables that you can do that with and be a little rougher with. But I'm like, peaches are not one of the things you can toss back into a bag. You have to be very soft and gentle with them. And, and the Lord is that like that with us, that not all seeds and not all fruit are going to be treated the same exact way. That even though it says beaten with the staff and, and with a rod, it is a very gentle way of harvesting compared to actually threshing which is yeah. where you beat it open and you flush it and grind it with these wheels. And I, I love that the Lord works with us individually. I, uh, well, and I think just uh, your, your comment about the, the, with the rod, beaten yes. with the rod, I think one of the translations is actually tapped, that it's a gentle tap. Love that. That's a great insight. And, and I, I've had coaches in my life that 
a good coach understands he can't treat everybody on the team the same exact way. And that doesn't mean he's, he's messing with the standards for everybody, but his interactions with them are not the same. I have a very vivid recollection of a teammate in mine after a, a, we, we just lost um, and we shouldn't have. And the coach pulling us aside after we just kind of just laid an egg the second part of this game, and the coach just ripped into me. Just probably one of the worst rippings I've had, like for parents, for coaches, for anything, just let me have it. And then turned to my teammate and said, you did well. And I remember just being bitter. Yeah. That like, they played worse than me. We could go back and watch footage of this and I could prove it to you that they did not do as well as I did. But for me, he understood that that lit a fire. And I was like, that will not happen again. I will not lose to that team again. It, it just, for me, it was something else. For this teammate, a little bit more sensitive. And perhaps not the person that the coach could really get at. So do you think, I, I, not knowing who the teammate is, did some of it also have to do with potential? Yeah, and not trying to toot my own. Yeah, yeah, that, and I'm not, I'm not looking for but The next year, I was in the newspaper. And there was a big article, and I was in the front page of the sports uh, sports section there. And the Rexburg Standard Journal is the big deal in Rexburg. <laughs> um, and, and again, not to make a bigger deal out of it than, than possible, but I think you're right that the Lord sees some potential and then works with you for that potential. Yeah. And it was something that was my senior year I was able to see and, and realize some of the benefits of that. And at first, where I thought the coach didn't like me, I ended up being probably my favorite teacher from high school. I, I just, I loved him. It's Parkinson, you're the man. Well, let's jump to 29, and we'll wrap this up. I 29 is the, um, I when the Lord talks about a, a marvelous work and a wonder, I was listening to a different podcast, um, talking scripture, I think. They were talking about historically putting into place in the Doctrine and Covenants, the number of times the Lord says, behold, the work and marvel, marvelous work and wonder is about to come forth. Yeah. He says it in Doctrine and Covenants 4, in 10, 11, 14, and then I think it's section 14, he never says it again. And then you just contextually, you put that in, in, the, in the timeline, that's about the time the Book of Mormon was finished trans, being translated. And so, and I love their insight uh, that while the Book of Mormon isn't the only part of the marvelous work and wonder, it, President Nelson's statement, it is the tool of, for the gathering of Israel, and it, it, is, it is the instrument through which the Lord is going to accomplish every other aspect of the marvelous work and wonder that's going to happen in this dispensation. The Book of Mormon is at its, you know, it's the keystone to, to take from President Benson. So what, what jumped out at you? What, what would you do with 29? How would you? I, I think for me... Uh, if, if 29 was going to be my focal point or the thing that I'm, I'm going to be teaching uh, a bunch, um, I, I'd ask uh, verse 4. I mean, you can have like your students, your class, whatever, sit on the ground. Just right at the very beginning and then say, and thou shalt be brought down and shall speak out of the ground. Thy speech shall be low out of the dust. Thy voice shall be as one that hath a familiar spirit and a, out of the ground. And thy speech shall whisper out of the dust. And, of course, you know, as you connect that to the, to the Book of Mormon, you see and understand that the Book of Mormon literally was brought out of the dust. Mm -hmm. You look at even how the Book of Mormon itself even came, came to be, and you understand that the symbol of, of Jesus that it was that was hid away and came forth in brightness. It's never going to be hid again. You just look at the literal aspects of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, and you're like, oh, it's familiar. Well, it should be. As you read it, you should be like, 
I, I love Jesus even more, and I love the Bible because, like, I read Isaiah. It's familiar. It's all familiar. Well, and, and that's a, a big part of it. The, the other just a, a little teaching technique or idea would be in, in like, verses 8 through 8 to 10 first. Maybe just ask, how would you describe the apostasy if you couldn't describe the apostasy? Like, using apostasy. Mm-hmm. Some of their TikTok challenges and stuff, but they're like, show me that your yeah. husband likes to hunt. Show me that you're from Idaho you. without showing me yeah. your fi- telling me you're yeah. from Idaho. Let's do something like that with, like, the apostasy. Say, how would you explain the apostasy without saying apostasy? Uh-huh. And, and I love how Isaiah does it. He says, when you're hungry and you dream about, like, a big delicious steak, and you wake up and you you're... Up and there's no steak. Yep. And, and you're still hungry. You're still hungry. Or when you're <laughs> thirsty and you dream and there's nothing to drink. Or when you're, uh, what's the other one here in in, uh, in verse 10, where he says, For the Lord hath poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep and hath closed your eyes. The prophets and the rulers of the seers have to cover. But he hides it. He hides truth. He hides revelation. So I, I would just make some connections, again, with some of that object lesson that Isaiah uses. Use his word. I think the best object lessons are when you can use the objects mentioned yeah. here and tie them back in. So that that would be how I would start with the apostasy and then tie it back into why. Why is the apostasy like being hungry and not being able to eat? Well, then that means that the restoration needs to be fed. Well, how? How is understanding the restoration like being fed? How is reading the Book of Mormon? How does that feel? I like that. How, does, how do your covenants make it so that like you're quenched like your thirst is quenched things like that that i would just use some of these words to do that so that's and just in verse 11 the vision of all is become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed i i would just take a copy of the book of Mormon and throw it in a book and lock or in a box and lock it up and say read the book um can't read the book why can't you read the book because it's in the box and then you can unlock it open it up let them read the book and and one of the things that i've i've been thinking about this is that the fact that Isaiah is, you know, this the the fact that so many of his prophecies are fulfilled in multiple ways, that they're, you know, that they've they've been fulfilled and they continue to be fulfilled. I've wondered. I, I know often we attach this section of verses to Professor Professor Anthony and Martin Harris and that experience that he had, and we kind of put this stamp. Okay, done. Check. Move on. But if it continues to be fulfilled. How is it that the book is delivered to, learn, to to people who are learned today still? The book's not sealed anymore. It's not even in a foreign language. How is it that people, how is it that learned or those that think they're wise, the Book of Mormon phrase, how is it that this book is still sealed to those that think they're wise? It's their own choice. And so I, I, I would put the book back in the box and say, now what do we do, I, especially as members of the church? I've already read the book. I don't need to read it anymore. What are the what are the attitudes that keep the book sealed to us? And and talk about this in the context of right now. Who are the learned that refuse to read it? Refuse to see it? And and what does it mean to be unlearned? I, I don't know that it has to do with a lack of education. I think it has to do with again I, the theme, the great theme of from the beginning has been pride and humility. Um those that are humble and continue to to read it get to Moroni 10 and you start over. You mentioned it last time. Why hurry Why hurry through the Book of Mormon? Because when you get to the end, you're just going to drop anchor for a while. But keep reading it. And and I, I, I think it would be a valuable exercise to sit and uh, and ask and have a conversation about what are the, 
what are the attitudes that keep this book sealed? Uh, what are the anti, what are the anti attitudes about the book? You know, why is it that some people who are so antagonistic towards the church, towards the prophets, can't get anything out of the book? Because they think they're learned. All right. Well, we'll see you. Uh, I'll see you next week, and probably a few times between now and then. <laughs> Thanks again for joining us on Take a Second for Come Follow Me, Brother Black and myself want to emphasize that in this episode or any other episode, there's nothing that we've said that is meant to or can in any way be interpreted as the official doctrine or policy or practice of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, Brother Black and myself simply represent two guys that enjoy talking about Scripture and and on our own life experiences as it relates to the Gospel of Jesus Christ and and hope that in sharing some of our thoughts and, and insights, but certainly our personal opinions and nothing more, that uh, maybe it might open up the scriptures a little bit to you. So thanks again for joining us on Take a Second, and we will see you in our next episode.